Welcome to the Trust Your Gut Podcast. I'm your host, Demi Fair. Here we dive into the world of the mind-body connection, exploring the gut-brain axis, microbiome, and nervous system while harnessing the power of intuition and connection to spirit. If you struggle with chronic digestive and mental stress and are tired of trying just one more diet or supplement to address your symptoms, then this is the place for you. Join me as we learn from the world of science and medicine, but also from nature, our own inner knowing, and personal stories. Thank you for tuning in, and now it's time to trust your gut. Hello and welcome back to the Trust Your Gut podcast. So we are continuing the Travel Stories series and we are going to be focused on India in this episode, which I'm very excited to get into because India was a very, very potent time for me. And this was nine years ago. And so... I am pulling out whatever memories I still have within my being, and I have my journal in front of me from that time, which I have not read through already. So I am going to be just uncovering this here with you live in this episode. And it's kind of fun because it's looking at what seeds were planted then what things were I start was I starting to you know uncover and work on then and learn about that now is present in my life in a different way or can I see the evolution of that or what you know lessons or patterns or connections have woven themselves into my life since then you know from almost a decade ago And so, again, this is, you know, storytelling of of travel and adventure, but also of the inner workings at that time and seeing how my own healing journey, especially, you know, with my nervous system, my past trauma, with my gut brain symptoms, how that's all woven into what I was experiencing at this time. So I hope that this brings resonance to you that you can reflect on your own healing journey Um, and overall it's just an enjoyable time of hearing some travel stories as well so as i wrapped up the last episode after nepal i went for a two-week climbing trip in greece yes really random i know Um, And then I returned back to India and um, landed in Delhi, which I remember being a really interesting experience. I was in a nicer part of Delhi that was just, you know, a little bit more access to like malls and shops and upscale places. I remember going into a Starbucks and one, it was air conditioned and I was like, oh, this is amazing, right? I just remember it being so hot in Delhi. It was you know, the monsoon season. So Delhi was just on that cusp of being too far south where it was just like this horrendous humidity and heat. So I was really just like 
exploring the city a bit and like hopping into air conditioning as much as I can. But I remember going into Starbucks and just being like, oh, familiarity, because, you know, I'm from Washington. Starbucks started in Seattle. So, and I mean, Starbucks is everywhere. And uh, I just remember sitting there and reflecting on that and just kind of feeling very overwhelmed. Um, India is a very hustling, bustling, busy place. And I am one who, you know, I'm very extroverted. I can really thrive in, you know, festivals or events or things with a lot going on. But of course, it can be very overwhelming and stimulating. And oh, you know, I forgot a story from the Nepal episode. So just before I left Nepal, I did travel down to the birthplace of Buddha. And this was called Lumbini. And this is a World Heritage Site. And it's a pilgrimage site for Buddhists around the world. And it has so many different monasteries it's really a beautiful beautiful place and it was buddha's birthday and we thought that would be a great time to go down and visit so there was this one day i was walking around uh, with the two friends i was with and there was this really huge family who had traveled up from india And I don't even exactly remember how this happened, but they took a liking to me. And this was my first experience of getting that attention um, that would later um, become a very challenging thing for me in India. But somehow there was this connection with the family and Soon after, I was dressed in a sari with makeup on, and I was just walking around the monasteries with this family all day. I was what they were calling, like, their Indian Barbie. And it was a really sweet experience. In hindsight now, I was so naive. I had no idea what was going on. Um, I wouldn't have done that. Uh, But I was naive. I really had no idea. I didn't... You know, in Nepal, there was definitely some attention, but it it was nothing like I received in India. And so after just like walking around the monasteries with them all day, and I remember we were taking so many photos, uh, we ended up coming back to the place where they were all just like sleeping outside and and camping there. And they were like, well, we're going to eat watermelon now. And so they... uh, got out watermelon and we all sat down and I mean there must have been at least 30 people here in this group in this family like it was really big there might have been more but I'm gonna guess around 30 or so and so we sit down and everyone's kind of just like gathered around me and there was the main woman who I like we had kind of made a connection and like a friendship um she was really cool and She's really kind of the reason why I ended up getting adopted into this family for the day and all dressed up. You know, she gave me her sari and her jewelry and put makeup on me. And so she's sitting in front of me and starts to cut the watermelon. And I notice like everyone's just kind of gathered around and staring at me. And she hands me a piece of watermelon and I eat it. And 
then I finish that and she hands me another slice of watermelon and I'm wondering like why okay no one else is eating watermelon so I so I eat another slice and I'm starting to feel uncomfortable and then I ask like oh is is anyone else going to have some watermelon (laughs) and she goes no no just for you and so everyone was just gathered around to watch me eat the watermelon so then at that point I was like okay well I'm good thank you so much I need to go back and find my friends like got undressed and departed so this was that first experience um, with that level of attention so I kind of found it refreshing that in Delhi no one really cared about me because there was a lot of other tourists there and um, I had some, you know, fun times. And, and then I met back up with the Australian man. Um, and this would begin our relationship. And so we made our way out of Delhi and we traveled up north because we wanted to get out of the heat. So uh, we first went up to Srinagar um, and had not the best experience there i don't think i need to get into details well definitely a lot of learnings a lot of being naive um we you know made a connection with a man on the street um and we went to go to this like botanical gardens um Somehow he kind of manipulated us into buying alcohol and then drinking it. Um, He got drunk. We were at the gardens. He kept wanting to take pictures with us. Again, this is when I started to learn about the picture taking in India. And I started to feel uh, overwhelmed by it. And then he and his friend were giving us a ride back but he had been drinking and then he was driving really fast and like purposefully like swerving around different cars and stuff and I started to feel really unsafe so I started to tell him to stop. Um, this brought back, you know, memories of when I was a kid and I was in the car and my dad was driving and he had been drinking, although I don't remember him speeding or swerving necessarily, maybe drifting you know this was like a a trauma being reenacted which I guess I knew that but I'm just kind of putting that into words now um but overall I really don't feel safe if someone is driving fast swerving doing dangerous things and this guy had been drinking so I pretty much started screaming at him to stop so was my partner and um he wouldn't stop And I was just screaming until the passenger, his friend, finally was like, hey, stop. Like, you need to stop. So he stopped. He pulled over. Um, And, you know, this is a bit of a trigger warning. Um, As I was getting out of the car, he grabbed my ass and then sped off. So this was kind of my first, you know, experience with India. And so Srinagar really rubbed me wrong. (laughs) It was really not a good experience. Um, we didn't stay there very long and then we made our way up further north. I remember we had the craziest bus ride. It was the windiest, like 
there was some windy, scary roads in Nepal, right? Where like you're in a big bus, there's a huge drop off, there's no guardrail, and this is a big bus, and like the people driving it have been driving it for a long time. They're very confident on there, but they're driving at a speed where you're like, oh my god, this is scary. So I remember this just being a crazy journey up into the mountains. Like you cannot get up to this area um, in the winter. This, there's only this small time of the year. It's in the Himalaya, the Indian Himalaya, where you can get up to this town. And this was the town of Ladakh. In particular, we went to the town of Leh, L-E-H. And this is such a beautiful region up in the Himalaya, mountainous landscapes. It was just really stunning. And I think shortly after we got there, the town itself is just, it's really nice. It's, you know, it seems very peaceful. There's a lot of other tourists there, really great little cafes and places to eat. Um, there's a lot of Tibetan refugees. The Ladakh region is nestled up against Tibet. Um, so there's a lot of like the Buddhist culture there as well. And we went for a little backpacking trip in the mountains pretty soon after we got there, which I remember us not being able to find the route, getting lost, running out of water, running out of fuel to make food. I think we made a fire camping in some random place, but it felt so good to get out into the mountains, especially just kind of decompressing after my time in Delhi and Srinagar. We did go and climb a peak called Stoke Congree. It was over 20,000 feet, so quite high up there. Um, it might have been the highest point I had ever been in my life. Uh, I'm going to have to go back and fact check that and see about if um, in Peru I went higher, but that was likely the highest point I've ever been in my life. I remember feeling the altitude quite a bit up at the summit. Um, it was not super technical at all. It was pretty much a like snow field. I think we crossed and had like an ice axe and crampons. Um, but we went out and did it on our own, like kind of just venturing off into the Indian Himalaya. And there was this really lovely base camp experience with these donkeys that would just come around and they loved to like cuddle. Um, and then, yeah, we had this beautiful time up there. And I remember as we were hiking back to like come back to lay. Uh, there was just this one section where there was this really like steep cliff across the valley and I just realized that there was hundreds of goats on this like steep sheer cliff and I have a video of it somewhere it was really amazing and lots of marmots and just like again a beautiful mountain range to explore and then we would just spend time like a couple days just like being in lay and then there was this festival that was going on that the Dalai Lama was speaking at and um, a lot of people traveled you know pilgrims from Tibet traveled over and so we went I think it was two or three days um, and we went we would listen to the Dalai Lama speak you would have to get like a little radio and someone was translating it into English there was a couple times he broke out and spoke English which you were like oh cool it kind of perked you up um, Richard Gear was there and gave like there was kind of someone to represent like the different uh, regions of you know places around the world people might be. So Richard Gear was like for the English speaking folks, 
um, it was it was just a really random and and pretty sweet experience. And I remember there being like a big carnival outside. You know, there were like rides and these like you know motorcycle cages where they're just like going around and around like sideways and different things going on. It was such a such a cool experience to be able to to see and be a part of. I don't remember. Um, necessarily anything that I like learned or withdrew from that from that time and and what the Dalai Lama might have shared and now the Dalai Lama is kind of canceled but uh, I mean it was it was kind of like very long days in the heat just kind of sitting and listening but I do remember just being around all these Tibetan people who were sharing butter tea and I tried some of it and I really didn't like it it was pretty horrific to me um but it was just it was such a surreal experience to be this white person um in the middle of really this community of tibetans um and just to know the trauma that the tibetan people have been through continue to go through um just seeing this beautiful coming together and and sharing of food and drink and community and just feeling like I, I mean I really have no, had no idea about much going on but to just be there as an observer and witness and try to connect as I could it, it was really a special experience um so yeah I, there was just like really nice up there um, we made our way down to Amritsar to the Golden Temple just for one night. I remember we couldn't find a place to stay. And we ended up meeting, like there was this free place that you could stay um, where people just sleep on the ground. I think it had free food maybe or we were able, there, there's like a place that serves free food for anyone who's coming to visit this really holy place of the Golden Temple. And we were able to go there and eat, and I thought that was a really beautiful experience. But there was no space for us to sleep. We ended up meeting someone on the street. And, you know, by this point, I'm kind of like, I didn't trust anyone on the street. I mean, I continue to have, you know, as a white blonde woman, a lot of attention from men. Um, Some of it seemed innocent enough. Some of it was not innocent. And so meeting people on the street, it was always hard to decipher if, Um, it was genuine and authentic and they really wanted to help or if they were trying to get something, you know, and if it felt unsafe. And that would be a theme that I navigated in India a lot. Um, I kind of took on this hard shell around myself and my body. You know, I I dressed very modestly because that's really the appropriate thing to do in India. Um, But I would kind of like really try to hide myself and I just didn't trust anyone. It's a really horrible way to be. But I just, I was very discerning, you know, really tried to feel into, is this person genuinely, you know, inviting me into their home or their space or trying to help me or just like wanting to make sure I'm taken care of as a visitor to their country? Or are they trying to get something out of me? And that was a really hard thing to navigate. So I remember my partner being really open to this person he was meeting who wanted to give us a place to sleep. And we had, you know, collected another person off the bus, um, this Chilean woman. And so there was the three of us looking for a place. And her and I, I remember we were like, no way. 
And I think he took us to a hotel to try to get us a room. And for some reason that room didn't work out or it was too expensive or something. And then he was just like, come, you can stay with me and my family. And her and I were very apprehensive, but I remember, you know, my boyfriend was very like, I I trust this person. So we went to his home and sure enough, his wife and children, they welcomed us in. They gave us their bedroom. They all shared, you know, the same room. They slept out on the porch. They made us food in the morning. They drove us to everyone was going separate ways. So um, my boyfriend was going off. He was now leaving India, going down to Malaysia because he had been in India longer than me. So his visa was expiring and he was moving on to the next thing. And I was deciding to stay in India. The Chilean girl and I were going to be going to Dharamsala. So um, we were driven to the train station. It was just a really beautiful example of how um, welcoming and hospitable um i found many of the people in india to be again there were times that was not the case but this was such a beautiful example and i think he even said to us like you know in our country you know the the visitor is god and you know we want to treat them as such and it it was it was a really beautiful experience I think it helped settle my system a little bit from being so like hardened and like on edge I think it was important for me to have that especially now as I moved into my solo travel in India which if you have thought about traveling in India if you are you know a woman woman identifying person You've probably heard things about it's not safe to travel alone in India, especially as a woman, woman presenting, identifying person. So, um, I, you know, I felt confident in my ability to navigate it, but again, there was a lot of discernment and being on edge through all of that. So we traveled back up to Dharamsala together, me and the Chilean woman, and, um, we shared a bit of time there together, but then it was my time to go find my own space to stay in. And this was such a beautiful place back north up in the in the Himalaya, a little bit more um, of a rainforesty kind of vibe. So a lot of humidity. It was the wet season, so there'd be storms. And this is the place where the Dalai Lama actually lives. And there's also a ton of Tibetan refugees there. And so this place attracts a lot of tourists, especially those who are interested in the healing arts. And it's a couple um, like villages all nestled together. So it's called, like we called it Dharamsala, but the actual place I was staying was McLeod Ganj. Dharamsala is like the city down at the bottom of the windy road. And then you go up the windy road and you land in McLeod Ganj. And that's where the Dalai Lama actually lives in the monastery. And then there's that village. And then there's a couple others scattered around, which you can take a car between them um, or you can walk between them. And then some you like start walking up these hillsides to get to more guest houses or restaurants or to some of the other villages. So you can kind of pick where you want to stay. And I ended up going, um, I don't remember the name of the, the little town village that I decided to land in but I found myself going up 
and finding this guest house no one else was there because it wasn't necessarily the busy season because it was the wet season um but it was this beautiful place that was really affordable i was going to be staying there for a month and it had this balcony that overlooked like all i could see were the rolling hills and forest it was definitely a bit of a trek uphill but i thought oh it's great i'll get some exercise and um, so I landed in there and it was a really special little spot and this would start my exploration into um, a lot of different healing arts and start my solo travel in India and so for this month I didn't drink which at that time you know I was drinking quite frequently so this was the kind of the first month I really took off of alcohol and I just began to go explore different things so i'd go to yoga classes um, i went and got certified in reiki i would go get different body work done massages my own reiki sessions i went and i did this art therapy series with a man in this little hut somewhere up there um i'd go to i went to a hula hooping class um ecstatic dance I met some man on the street who um, kind of read my energy and um, I'll, I'll share what he said because um, a lot of it has actually come true. Um, and then I was visiting an Ayurvedic doctor up there. So I was just, I mean, there was probably more things that I was doing too that I can't even remember. But that was kind of the vibe for me. I just was really starting to dig into my healing and you know i had been um going through quite a few stomach bugs as i expressed in my last episode throughout nepal and so that coupled with just like the stress of travel um and the different food like my body and my gut definitely wasn't feeling its best um oh and i forgot this part uh my boyfriend and I did go somewhere else, I think, before we went to the Golden Temple. Um, Manali, another village, you know, town up in the Himalaya there. And there's a lot of Israelis in Manali. Um, we actually went to a Shabbat, and there was, that's where I discovered Shashuka and um, found out about Blundstones and. <laughs> Uh, so there was some cool things going on there too. And that was actually where I spent the first anniversary of my dad's death. So there was a lot of emotional things coming up as well for me at that time. Um, and I think we went on a rafting trip and got to do some rock climbing up there. But otherwise it was just a lot of like, you just hang out, walk around, like go to the cafes, like, um, such a relaxed vibe up in up in those parts kind of like Lay was so you know as I'm in McLeod Ganj I'm starting you know I'm now on my own um you know my body has been kind of going through a lot of things um I'm about six months in to this trip and have been a lot of places and done a lot of things kind of a bit of my flight response pattern and you know the first year anniversary of my dad's death has just happened so I'm you know, navigating this, you know, grief and emotional upheaval. So it felt really good to just settle in this place for a little bit. 
and I started to have like different views on my body and different insights. So as I was there, I started to think less about what I was eating and how that was causing my symptoms and starting to just look at my overall energy around eating and just like the energy throughout my body as well. So this again is definitely like that seed being further planted that now has obviously really bloomed into the focus of my work today. So I was talking about, like I, I write in my journal, I stood and let my stomach drop and relax completely. And when I did, it was so distended and bloated. The main problem is not letting it relax, causing pressure and constant tension on my intestines. It doesn't allow for an easy, proper digestion and elimination, probably forming and blocking gas. So a little note about this is I have been sucking my stomach in um, at least since seventh grade. And that started, I remember, at least one big part of it was my friend at the time, my best friend at the time, I remember her telling me that if you suck your stomach in, you will look skinnier. It'll make you look skinnier. And so from that point, I started to suck my stomach in. There was probably other things too, as I talked about in the last episode of just, you know, the the armoring and the, the holding and how that can so easily happen in that stomach area that probably started earlier on in my childhood, especially dealing with chronic constipation. But I remember that specifically from seventh grade and that's when it became more about appearance and the idea around my stomach being, um, yeah, not flat, how important it was to have a flat stomach. And that was something I... Like, I just hated my stomach for so long. I hated it for so long. I didn't want it to be, except one period of time, this is kind of amazing, when I was a freshman in high school and I wore cropped t-shirts all the time. It was because I had actually lost weight between eighth grade and freshman year, I think just from growing and hormonal shifts um, and stuff. And I felt really good. But then this was before I really developed um, some of the body image issues and a lot of the really severe uh, bloating that I started to have as a teenager. So once the bloating started, and I'm sure many of you can relate, like the stomach was just this like horrible thing that I wanted baggy shirts over it. I didn't want it to be shown, like didn't want to touch it myself, didn't want anyone else to touch it, like this like hated area. And so I was having just this time here in India where I was like, starting to just really let it relax and feel when I relaxed it how bloated it was and how much bigger it felt and what that brought up for me and just again starting to understand like how much more tension I was holding there by sucking it in so that was one thing I also write about the problem is eating too fast and how that was producing a lot of excess gas which led to bloating And I wrote, it's about body awareness, how I move, how much my body needs to eat, where I'm feeling tension, relaxing that tension. So I started to kind of understand 
how my whole body being in tension, so being in a chronic fight or flight response, was leading to these digestive issues I was experiencing. So I go on a little bit further and I write about how what I've been realizing is that one, I'm eating too fast and I think the largest one is stress and mostly stress about how much and what I'm eating. I can remember times like going to work where I was constantly thinking of food, maybe because I didn't want to be working and it was a positive thing to look forward to, but there is more there. I was always stressed about what I was eating and how much. And so I was even thinking about it when I wasn't eating. That's like how bad it became. And I'm sure, again, many of you can relate when you're not sure if a food is going to make your symptoms react or not, right? So then I continue writing, when I stress over a meal, it will not digest well. When I stress over my body, it will not feel well. I have realized that my eating habits were not good for my body. Eating too frequently because I believed I needed to, like to keep my metabolism going. Overeating at nearly every meal and probably too fast, just because I wasn't mindful with it, I wasn't paying attention. Eating on the go or quickly due to time constraints or being under stress, not relaxing before a meal, irregular meal times, being stressed about what I was eating or how much, etc., etc. So again, this is when I started to stop looking so much about what specifically I was eating, which at this point I had been gluten and dairy free for a while and you know, avoided other certain things, maybe had certain fears around fruits already at this point or something. And I started to really see the bigger picture of like, What's my overall state in my system when I'm sitting down to eat and I'm re- am I really present with my food or am I just scarfing it down and I'm eating under stress and I'm actually end up overeating and causing like my digestion to have to deal with a lot more. So this was really kind of that start of looking outside of just blaming the food. That doesn't mean that I <laughs> kept that going as you'll hear about my time in Australia, but um, this at least was that seed planted. So uh, that will be woven in and out throughout this time. But again, in McLeod Gonge, I started to think differently. I remember going to an Ayurvedic doctor and he told me that I was needing to slow down and then that was going to help my digestive issues. Again, this was something I think I kind of knew, but to like hear it from someone who just you know, read me and everything I had to share. He was like, you are moving too fast. You're too go, go, go. You need to slow down. So that might be here in the journal somewhere. Uh, But as I mentioned, I met a man on the street. I guess it was, I came out of a a meditation, um, a group meditation or yoga class and after I met this man who could read my energy and he called things out about me that were quite spot on so he said you have a good energy it's a spiritual energy that's strong but sometimes you don't know what to do with it you can't always receive it and some people don't understand it although you try to make them you think too much very spot on have too much stress (laughs) I can't tell you how many people in India told me this like We'll get there. There is sadness inside of you. You need to let go of the past. 
that one really hit me. Obviously, I was carrying grief from my father, but there was also sadness around that relationship that ended before this journey, as I mentioned in the last episode, and other things from the past. I mean, some of this stuff, many people overthink, have stress, have sadness inside of them, need to let go of the past, but this felt really, you know, resonant at the time from what I was holding on to and, and trying to like work through in this in this month I was there. He continues, although you have so much strong energy, you still feel very tired, heavy, low energy at times, which also really resonated. You know, I think dealing with um, OCD, anxiety, a very overthinking, overactive brain, being in a flight response all my life, and then having, you know, these gut brain issues that felt really exhausting, I could end up feeling really tired and heavy and low energy, you know, and easily burn myself out, which now I'm understanding a lot more now that I understand the nervous system and my nervous system. Um, But that was like really, again, it was like the right people coming in and sending me these messages that I kind of needed to hear over and over again and honestly needed to hear over and over again over these last nine years (laughs) and still working on it, right? So, um, let's see what else is here. Oh, yes. I talked about doing this intuitive painting. I think I went and met this guy uh, a couple times. And this was when he would, I would, he'd like kind of give me a, maybe a prompt to paint where he would just like, I would just paint and then he'd look at what I paint and interpret it. Right. So, you know. But there was some things that were potent in it for me because he, I think the thing that came up was a lot about um, like feminine energy. And again, at my time in India, I started to understand that I held a lot of masculine energy. I'd always been very go, 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 do, do, do. Like even the workouts I were doing, like CrossFit and hit and like weight training and like everything was just like really like masculine energy and I had a really hard time being in that feminine energy of receiving, being more open, being more flowy. I had a really hard time connecting to my feminine in general and um, being able to relax and so that was again the first seed planted of how I had been living and operating that was not serving me in my symptoms especially. It also didn't serve me very well in my romantic relationships and like what I wanted out of them. So this has also been a practice for me in learning how to connect to my feminine energy and learn how to relax more, which I would say has been a huge, huge part of my healing process. So that was definitely planted then, and there was um, kind of a big light bulb moment for me. And that's when I started to, um, I really started to slow down. Like I stopped, you know, I was traveling, so I wasn't doing like CrossFit or strength training or anything, but I started to focus more on doing yoga and walks and dance and things that just felt more slow and nourishing to my body. So 
This is um, another entry from my journal. I write, healing doesn't come from just a few yoga classes, meditations, intuitive painting, Reiki courses that you attend. It's a process that takes a while, not just one class or a week of classes. The healing process comes from inside, the desire to change something, move something, to start the healing process. It requires a shift in mindsets, thought patterns, habits. It's challenging and scary. It starts with that desire in the body and the drive in the mind. You have to think that way, or I would you know, kind of say now you have to feel that way. Think and feel in a healing way. Of course, there are things that help that process like yoga, meditation, music, dance, writing, art, Reiki, etc. It can all be helpful in the healing process, but you can't expect it to just heal you alone. So if you go the day without going to any class or you don't do that intensive or you want to watch a movie instead of sitting alone doing Reiki or something quote unquote insightful, then that's okay. You're not failing on your healing or wasting your time. You are going with what feels right in that moment. As Eric said, this was someone I met there, maybe what you have to do to get from point A to point B is to let go. So this came up as, you know, here I am, like kind of in my own healing intensive, feeling like I was needing to go to all these classes and and starting to have this shift around what healing actually meant to me and finding more alignment in what felt true and resonant into my own being healing so many of the things I was focused on at this time was like healing my view of my body and like healing my relationship with food that wasn't going to be a linear process Um, I was working on just presence and mindfulness like working to quiet my mind self-love and acceptance obviously working with my digestion my stress and anxiety Um, And also working with like intimacy and relationships and sexuality. Um, So I'm kind of in Dharamsala thinking, McLeod Gange, thinking about what I'm doing next. And, you know, my partner is now off somewhere else. And there's talk about us connecting. And then a part of me that feels like I need to also keep traveling alone. And so I start to reflect on like, you know, I feel my best growth is going to happen by traveling solo. But I ask, is that really true? There's only so much healing you can do on your own. And you can't really work on relationships without being in relationship. And that is where a lot of my wounds have come from relationships. So I'm already starting to, again, like, This is a deeper reflection on a lot of what I consider to be my wounding that I carry now is all like attachment wounding and relationship wounding. Um, So I write, perhaps something I need is healing through intimacy and vulnerability with another person by being in relationship with another person. Um, You know, I reflect on going to this contact dance class there and how much of a distance I felt like I put between myself and people. And that was then reflected on that wasn't just with strangers, but also with family and friends. I have a hard time showing affection physically and allowing others to, you know, cross that boundary. Um, I've always been able to do that well with, you know, romantic, intimate male partners. But for some reason in other settings, that's not just been something I feel super easeful about, even though I have always wanted to. Uh, So... 
this I think is just a beautiful reflection too of seeing like there's so much that we can do and work on and heal within ourselves on our own journey but there needs to be that communal or co-regulation piece to some extent whether that's with a therapist with a family member with a friend with a romantic partner in some sort of like community healing setting like a group um we need both of those pieces and this is something that uh, I I talk about um with the gut brain healing toolkit and like why I want some sort of group aspect is because like we are social creatures and we need to heal in community now there's things that we want to do to self-regulate and work on our own healing but we also need that co-regulation so I think this was kind of the start of understanding that and that ultimately helped me go towards meeting back up with with him instead of traveling solo now here's where the really fun (laughs) part starts for me there was this ukrainian woman i met and we connected and she told me about how she had been in mexico and she drank ayahuasca and i had you know known about ayahuasca but hadn't really thought about doing it or seeking it out. So it came up in conversation with her. And then I was like, oh, you know, I think I would like to sit with ayahuasca sometime. And she didn't have the best experience, but I was still like very intrigued and motivated. And then days later, I see a sign for there was this little like performance art studio that was closed because it was just the off season and I was like oh man I really want to go check this out too bad it's closed and I saw a little sign that they were starting up their little classes and workshops again for the season and the first thing they were having was this music gathering this uh, the shamanism music gathering they called it something like that so I was like oh well, that sounds really intriguing. I'm going to go check that out. And so I went and there was a small group there and we sang songs together and it was really beautiful. And then the person leading it ended up inviting us all to come and do ayahuasca in a ceremony with him. And he felt like a really beautiful energy and really safe and so did the person helping him and so I just took it as like this it felt really right and it just happened suddenly so I ended up deciding to join in on this ayahuasca ceremony so I'm not going to go into necessarily all of the details of the ceremony but I'll try to share a little bit especially from these first two that I ever did because they were the first I ever did and they were pretty potent. Um, At this point now in my life, I think I've had seven ayahuasca ceremonies, so maybe there'll be another episode sometime if people are interested to hear more about those personal journeys. But they're each, you know, very personal um, processes, uh, but have been a really, like, potent part of my healing. So this first one, um, I like the medicine came on very slowly and gradually, and I remember my mind was kind of starting to figure it out, which is just 
what my mind does. Like, did I not have enough? Um, and I remember feeling upset by that idea and I could feel how I was thinking too much. I could feel all the tension in my brain. It was kind of tingling and even kind of going numb. And I remember worrying that my thinking was kind of blocking my experience, which has been a theme for me as I've worked with ayahuasca always kind of feeling the thinking brain being really overbearing because that's part of my life. I have a very overthinking brain. But then I started to feel it in my body and it was just like a really pleasant feeling. And I remember realizing that my body was beautiful, how it was, just the way it was. And I could feel the tension in it and the hardness, how I built up so much armor and just kind of strength in this life which has you know kind of been this theme so far in this travel series of coming to uncover and was reflecting on how strength is something that people often admire in others and i remember a lot of people telling me how strong i was either like physically in my muscles or like the way i was navigating my dad's death or traveling solo or whatever it was and just like reflected on how being strong and tough all the time wasn't healthy like I needed to be soft so again that theme kind of emerging here of finding my softness uh, I could really just feel a lot of love there's this experience of feeling a lot of love for myself and others and the people in my life and feeling like really connected to everything um, when working with ayahuasca so I started to feel that towards um my current partner at the time and it was just very clear that i was to go meet him and continue traveling with him instead of going on alone for the rest of the year then the feeling turned to sadness and i started to feel sadness from my childhood and tears began to flow and i felt kind of like a release um, I felt sad about my parents, their divorce. I felt sad about my dad. I felt the years of suppressed emotions I never got to express and relief start to come out in my tears. And I just kept saying, it's okay, it's over, let it go. And I felt it kind of leave me with the music that was going on. But the next thing that happened has to this day been one of the most intense things I've experienced on ayahuasca or not. Um, I remember starting to get the, the feeling that I needed to purge, which is a part of drinking ayahuasca. You often will need to purge. You don't always. I haven't always purged at every ceremony, but the idea behind it is that it is releasing things, emotions, energies, traumas, things that we no longer need to hold on to. It's a, it's a cleansing. So I began you know, to sit up and kind of go towards the bucket and things started to just like really spin and I, I couldn't release. And I ended up feeling just absolutely awful. It was like the worst feeling in the world. Like I can't even describe it. I, I didn't feel in control. Everything was dark and spinning. I felt so sick, so horrible. I just wanted it to be over. And then my body started, it started to shake uncontrollably. And, um, it was so crazy because it started like this particular shaking and energy started at the base of my spine and I felt it shake and move up my spine until it got to the top and then I purged 
and it just felt like all this built up negative energy just be released. It felt like trauma just being released from my nervous system that had been built up over the years. And I just like slumped over the bucket. I still felt, you know, a bit sick and like just exhausted. I just felt exhausted. I, I was relieved, but I was just like, oh. And I thought maybe more was going to come, but then it subsided. And suddenly I felt extremely light. So I laid down under the blanket and I ended up curling up into the fetal position and staying that way for pretty much the rest of the night. And I went through feeling just a lot of love for family and going kind of through everyone in my life and connecting with them and um, processing things around them I needed to. And then going into like the grief for my dad and, you know, just found myself in this position where I was like curled up in the fetal position under the blanket. At one point I had drool, tears, snot going down my face and I was sucking on my thumb. <laughs> I really felt like I was like going back into these younger years. Um, and it was really, really powerful. And the rest of the night ended up being just really beautiful. I just felt really connected to the music and just in a lot of love until I fell asleep. Um, so that was just absolutely beautiful there was a lot of feeling of like i'm enough just the way i am just feeling really connected to the universe felt a lot of peace and joy just felt like a little child in the womb of the world so often when you work with ayahuasca you will do two ceremonies back to back so we had a second night and this one was um really subtle for me i remember not much seemed to quote unquote happen um and it just ended up being like really restful and nourishing. And I remember kind of going up to the facilitator afterwards to, to ask about that. And, you know, he just said like the medicine gives you what you need. And maybe what I needed was to, you know, just really rest and like, after what had happened the first night. And now that I've um, worked with and studied trauma a lot more and just the healing process, I see how true that is. And this has been kind of a theme for me as I've continued to work with ayahuasca is like typically having like a kind of a more potent night and then one that's a little bit more easeful. And um, it hasn't always been in the order of like the potent night, the first and the easeful one, the second. It has been flipped before. But um, when we think about healing and especially like working with like trauma or with our nervous system and, and processing emotions, like we need time to integrate, right? So if both nights would have just like been deep processing, you know, I might have struggled to integrate after, whereas this second night, it gave me a lot of rest. And there was still more like purging and eliminating and moving things out. And there was still like insights and processing that I don't really remember. But it was like an opportunity to kind of help integrate what had happened before. And that that is a really important thing for us to remember is that we, we need time to integrate. We can't like rush 
the process of healing uh, trauma, especially because we need to feel safe in that process. And trauma is something that happened too fast, too soon, for too long. So we need it to be in slow, bite-sized chunks. So now I can see that in hindsight as to like why that may have happened and how important it was. So after this experience, um, I was pretty much on my way to move on to Rishikesh, which is uh, like the birthplace of yoga. Um, It's known for having a ton of ashrams that you can go and stay in and practice yoga. There's a lot of amazing yoga teachers there that you can go train with. It's also known um, for a place that the Beatles stayed for a while and there's an ashram there. So it was really hard to leave Maklab Ganj um, and Bogsu, which was the name of the village I was staying. I remembered it now from the journal. Uh, But it felt like that time to go. And I moved on to Rishikesh. And I ended up staying in an ashram there. And that was typically starting with yoga in the morning, uh, being fed, and then yoga in the evening, being fed again, and then Um, Often there was some sort of something else offered in the day um, if we wanted to come and do that, chanting, um, singing. And it was really nice just kind of come and land in that place and kind of be in that routine and experience what living in an ashram is like. And it gave opportunity to like go and travel around and experience Rishikesh and I remember just feeling really inspired by that place and the ashram living and the people here who are all just like very much on their own healing journeys right it definitely attracts people who are coming to like eat pray love (laughs) you know um and I just met a lot of people with similar mindsets and um I wrote about how it kind of renewed my sense of purpose and gave me new inspiration and ideas. And I met people who had, you know, been staying in monasteries and doing Vipassana and living in Thailand and doing all these different things. Um, so, you know, I knew my time in India was going to be coming to an end soon and I was going to be returning back to, to Southeast Asia to go to Malaysia and Laos and Vietnam. And I just really wanted to, like, make sure I didn't, like, lose all that I was, you know, all this intention behind my time in India as I went back to these places that could, you know, be filled with more like partying and and things like that. Um, You know, India really allowed me to not only just explore new places, but also explore these like depths of my soul, which was really potent. And, um, keep in alignment with my heart and my intuition and just like really like I felt like it really helped me deepen my love for myself and and open myself to new ways of healing and understanding more about why I was maybe experiencing a lot of the symptoms I had been. I write in my journal how I 
was feeling really peaceful and feeling really good being alone at that point. I didn't really have a whole lot of interest in actually like trying to converse and meet other travelers among me in the cafes. I just was really enjoying my own presence and to to be honest this was the first time in my life I had really ever done that like when I was younger in high school and just after high school and I mean throughout college I was just always with other people just highly social always hanging out with other people I didn't spend a lot of time by myself so this was kind of the first time like those that month in um Bogsu and McLeod Ganj and now in Rishikesh that I was like really feeling comfortable in my own company and presence and I write about how I hadn't been stressed anxious or overwhelmed in a long time except for just a few moments of like travel rush and stuff and how it was such a nice change of pace from the normal and you know acknowledging how my mind was still you know thinking of what I should do after this or today or this week but just in general was finding less stress and anxiety coming from that and just more awareness around that and just telling myself it was not something I needed to worry about. That I didn't need to plan things out or have it all figured out or accomplish anything that day. That I could just be and see what unfolded. Which obviously is, you know, more doable when you're traveling. You're not at home working, you know, with all your responsibilities. So just acknowledging that. A lot of just trying to accept that I was enough as I am now that I don't need accomplishments or outside things to fulfill me or complete me or make me better. And if I live from my heart and intuition, that I will do what's right for me. You know, that I can feel into what's right for me. Just how poisonous, I said, the the worries of my mind are to my well-being. Now, this is, again, a long journey process to really get there. So, uh, I... Ended up getting really, really sick at the end of my time in Rishikesh um, and pretty much had to like get on an overnight train. I was going to head to Varanasi um, because I wanted to um, go see Varanasi. I did a little bit more Ayurvedic work there, did something called Panchakarma um, along with yoga. Again, just kind of deepening into my healing path. And I went on the overnight train. I had a really intense experience. Um, I was supposed to be in an all-woman carriage because I I wasn't able to get first class and it was not all women. Luckily, I was on the top bunk. I covered my head. You know, there's there are some horror stories about riding the trains, overnight trains in India. Um, and I was safe all night, but in the morning... I came down from my bunk and I was sitting and I was just surrounded by a bunch of men and they were all literally staring at me. They were sitting next to me, all staring at me. And it was, it was a really, it was a really challenging thing. Um, one thing I had to like remind myself of, and and I wrote this, um, somewhere and it might be here in this journal, but I think I wrote it on an Instagram post while I was there. It was just like how like frustrated it made me to be stared at. And, you know, that situation didn't feel very safe, just the proximity. Sometimes I'd be on a bus and people would be staring at me and it's like whatever. But the proximity of like just like a ton of men, five or six men just sitting there staring at me made me really uncomfortable. And I actually started to like 
make like kind of growly faces at them or like show my frustration like all that fight energy kind of got worked up within me and you know that was good for me to to experience um and i'm gonna find what i wrote because i think it, it it really tells it well so let me gather that all right i found this post from September 2014. I write, sitting on the train, I am surrounded by men just staring at me nonstop. Even my glares do not get them to look away. I'm pissed. I've been traveling in India for over three months with more stares than I can even begin to count, but this is really getting under my skin. I want to shout at them and tell them to fuck off. I'm ready to punch anyone who gets too close. Who is this angry, violent person I've become? This is why India is hard, because it makes you hard. It's crowded, loud, dirty, smelly, and nothing goes according to plan. You are constantly being hassled, scammed, or looked at as a walking ATM. People are constantly staring at you, which is, is especially hard as a white, blonde, green-eyed woman. The majority of men are the worst part. They stare at you like a piece of meat, make comments, ask for photos, and really push your boundaries and comfort zone. But even in those times I feel depleted and fed up with this unwanted attention, I realize how empowering it can be. This experience makes me feel completely empowered as a woman. Never have I had to stand up so much for myself to show these men that it is not okay to treat me or any other woman that way. I don't particularly enjoy having to be so hard on edge and such a bitch all the time. It's not the way I want to treat others, but at the end of this experience, when I leave India, I will be that much more empowered and grounded in my feminine power and hopefully these men will understand that Western women are not quote-unquote easy. This was something that I had heard a lot. So I don't know the accuracy to this. Again, I wrote this in 2014, but it was something that I had heard. Hopefully this will spread a new message that they go and share with their friends. And while I'm sitting on the train ready to attack, I take a breath and remember that this is not my culture. This is their culture, and this is how it is. Their stares do not harm me. Right? That was a big thing. Who am I to come here and say, this is wrong? This is not my culture. It's not my place to come and say, this is wrong. Because this is actually quite normal here. And I look fucking different. <laughs> and people are curious, right? We've grown up in Western culture saying, don't stare, that's rude. You know how children just stare at things that are different. It doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. So I write, you know, this is their culture. Their stares do not harm me. And for every person who is trying to sell me something for an unreasonable price, there are five others who would happily invite me into their home and feed me until I can't move, who would go out of their way to help me for no cost just because I am a guest in their country and guest is God. Or the simple friendly shopkeeper who invites me in to sit and drink tea. Then begins my love-hate relationship with India all over again. And so it is with life. We must find the beautiful light in the dark negatives or else we will continue to be that hard shell of anger on the train. Or else we will miss all the people who are just there to offer help or a tea. This is the way of India and its people. They are always striving for that light in the darkness of everyday life. The country may be poor, but it's rich in spirituality, heart, and hope. And that, in my opinion, is truly rich. So that was a really powerful mindset for, you know, a, a thing for me to, to shift with and to, to realize how 
in a way it was teaching me how to you know be empowered you know be traveling as a solo female in a country where I look a lot different and am getting a lot of unwanted attention and how to be discerning and keep myself safe and like stand up for myself in a way that felt empowering you know and to also just understand that this is not my culture and for the most part no one is harming me you know and it was cool to like engage with that healthy anger and aggression sometimes I maybe flip people off and said things and <laughs> it wasn't maybe the healthiest but it it really taught me how to just feel confident and empowered and in navigating the world by myself and I'm I'm very grateful for that so I did get to Varanasi after that and I remember just sitting and watching monkeys um going along the rooftops jumping into like I, I was watching them like jump into like pools of water from these beams and stuff it was really amazing uh and that was a really special sight and Varanasi was hard it was hot it was humid it was dirty it was crowded it didn't really feel like there was a place to relax after being up in these smaller towns where there was like rivers to sit by and beautiful scenery it was just like I felt really overwhelmed there uh but it was a beautiful place to just like see how people were living there. There was so much spirituality here, like in everything and around every corner. Now it didn't necessarily feel holy to me because that's not my culture, but it was so holy to those who were Hindu. And I watched people every day bathe and pray in the river with so much dedication and women pouring water over each other's heads while rubbing their faces with the holy water and chanting prayers. Men who were out deeper in the river doing the same. And it just gave me a new perspective on India in general to like really see like there was a lot. I saw a lot of poverty here in this city, more so than some of the other places more up north. But again, there was just this like unwavering dedication to to their faith and to just like going about life with what they had so um that was a really I think that was a really important thing to see and experience and and to also like experience again like the you know people like there was like parades of bodies being carried off to the river to be cremated and I and I watched that happen and just how much life and death is interwoven within each other there's no separation it's all like woven into everyday life um which you know in my experience of western culture we really just avoid death so for my last hour there in Varanasi I sat at a rooftop restaurant of the guest house I was staying in as the sunset and hundreds of birds flew above and it was absolutely stunning. There were young boys in nearby buildings that were flying little paper kites that twisted and turned with the birds in the air. Boats filled with sorry clawed women drifted by as the light peak of sunset reflected on the holy river. It was spectacular. This was really the most beautiful holy city I ever got to see. And although the good and the bad is all part of it, also the crowded, you know, streets filled with shit and garbage and the constant hassling and 
scamming around me, the dark, confusing, twisted alleys, the polluted river, the dead bodies being burned, the abused dogs, the honking. There's also the praying and the washing and the bathing and the belief, and it's all a part of it. And that's what makes it what it is as its heart. Without all that stuff that drives me crazy there that was overwhelming to me, I could find bliss in this moment on the rooftop or walking along the river or meeting a friendly, helpful stranger. And I'm glad that I went through some challenge there because I want to be challenged. I want to see this culture truly as it is and because there's no place like India. And I wrote, even if I don't absorb it all now, even if it takes me a while to see what I've learned, if anything, it's opened my eyes to something so new and different from myself and my experience in understanding of this world. And that is what traveling is all about. So that wrapped up my time in India and um, would set me off for my journey back to Southeast Asia. And that is going to be... In the next episode, I'll focus on my time in Malaysia, Laos, and Vietnam. Thanks so much again for listening um, and just kind of being with me as I go back through these um, these experiences. Appreciate you all so much. As always, if you're interested in um, connecting with me further, I have all the links down below um, to... Um, find my content on social media and uh, look for the gut brain healing toolkit if you want to work on some of the deeper aspects that are a part of healing your chronic gut brain symptoms like your nervous system and processing trauma all the info is down there in the show notes and as always if you can share this subscribe, download. It really helps get the word out and comments and ratings, reviews are always so, so helpful. Thank you so much for being here. Before you go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoy this show, please subscribe, leave a rating or review and share it. That helps it reach others who will benefit from this information. So much gratitude for you. Have a beautiful day.